Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 10th, 2018, and my guest is psychiatrist and former teacher of English at Oxford University, Ian McGilchrist. He is the author of The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain, and The Making of the Western World. And that is our topic for today. Ian, welcome to EconTalk. Oh, thank you. Now, you've written an extraordinary book. It's, uh, it's 460 pages of dense print filled with innumerable philosophical, cultural references that are hard to parse. Uh, it's probably over 200,000 words. There's, the print's small, and the margins are small. So I really can't recommend this book. <laughs> I can't to my listeners. But at the same ta- time, I can't <laughs> recommend it enough. Uh, it is earth-shaking <laughs> in its provocativeness. Um, if you stick with it, listeners, it will fundamentally change the way you view the world and possibly yourself. Uh, and I, I'd like to say I couldn't put it down. That's not true. I put it down many, many times because I could only read a few pages at a time, but they were always fascinating. It's really an incredible achievement. I know you worked on it for a long time and it, and it shows. It's, uh, as I said, it's, it changes. It gives you an entirely different lens for looking at the world than, uh, than you had before. So part of our discussion today is going to be neuroscience. Part of it's going to be applications of that neuroscience to Western civilization. And part of it will be the part I bring in, which is the applications to economics. Uh, so let's, let's get started. You start with the deep idea that we have misunderstood the differences between the left side and the right side of the brain. Uh, they're not symmetrical. Uh, but that we've misunderstood what's important about that asymmetry. Explain your vision of those differences and how that vision has emerged from your understanding of the neuroscience research. Well, although I intuited fairly early on there was something rather important here, I was uh, comprehensively warned off treating the subject because, as many of your listeners will assume, um, it, it's it's a, an area of uh, pop psychology that has no validity in science. That was unfortunately the prejudice that uh, I had to work against. But uh, there is absolutely no question um, that there is a massive difference between the two uh, sides of the brain. It's just a question of what that difference is. Um, And in the book, I lay out with the help of about two and a half thousand references to the literature exactly what I think those differences are. It's probably worth saying that um, uh, this is not just a human thing at all. It goes uh, not just uh, in mammals. Uh, It's in reptiles, amphibians, fish, nematode worms, uh, mollusks, uh, insects, uh, and indeed the oldest living creature uh, that we have, which is uh, a a, a sea uh, creature that lives off the Isle of Wight, 700 million years old, already has a lateralized neural network. So it's extremely basic to all living beings. Um, Now, what is that difference about? People got put off because there was a lot of very silly things said, and I I understand why my colleagues were nervous, um, because, you know, it used to be said that the left hemisphere was, you know, down to earth, a bit dull, but 
terribly reliable, rather clever um, linguistic. The right hemisphere was a sort of caricature, uh, pink and fluffy creative artist of some kind, um, with little to contribute to language or reason. Uh, none of this turns out to be right at all. I mean, both hemispheres are very much involved in everything. So does that mean there's no difference? Well, no, it doesn't at all. Um, uh, first of all, when you look at the brain, uh, the two halves are physically measurably different in a whole range of ways. In any case, why is the brain divided? You know, if you've got an organ... It's a crazy that, idea. <laughs> that, yeah, that exists to make connections, you know. So how about let's putting a huge great divide right down the middle. Um, and, and, you know, this structure is is in all... all uh, the, the nervous systems of all creatures that we know. So there's something ancient and important there. Um, and as I say, if you measure them, the two hemispheres are different sizes, different weights, different shapes. The um, sulcal gyral markings, the sort of convolutions are different on the two sides. They have different ratios of greater white matter. They respond to neuroendocrine hormones differently. They use different preponderances of neurotransmitters. Even some of the nerve structures are different. You cannot say there is nothing going on here, um, especially when you realize that the band of fibers that lays at the brain called the corpus callosum, um, which, which connects the hemispheres, um, only 2% of neurons actually cross that. And the upshot of what they're doing is often to say to the other hemisphere, keep out of this. So it's not so much they're recruiting one another as carefully inhibiting one another. Now, that, all that is is fascinating and was the background to why for 20 years I studied this. And so we know, what came and we, up? And we know about that from people who have strokes, uh, various types of neuroimaging that are, that's now available to us, right? So the differences you're going to talk about aren't yeah. just like speculation, like it's an inch long, it's a oh, centimeter longer here, et cetera. No, no, no. The, the, these things are very important. And, uh, you can quickly tell the difference between a neuroscientist who doesn't know anything about medicine or people and a neurologist or a psychiatrist or neuropsychiatrist because uh, we who are clinicians know from our experience as in ways that Oliver Sacks has made very popular, um, the fascinating ways in which people's world changes when they have a stroke. And it changes not just according to the sight, but according to the side of the lesion, so it, that that's a, that's just a taken for granted. Um, if you live in a in, in a lab and you spend all your life looking at a single cell, you, you, and you think of the brain as a machine, you may not know this, or you may just choose to forget it. But it's absolutely clear. So, what is going on here? I have a theory, which I don't know a better contending one, but it's just a hypothesis. Uh, but it has an awful lot of evidence going for it, which is that it's there for good reasons, Darwinian reasons of survival, because every living creature has effectively to do two things. It has to be able to get hold of stuff, to use it, food, um, shelter. It has to be able to manipulate things, pick up a twig, build a nest, uh, grab a seed quickly and precisely, catch its prey, lock onto it. So in order to use the world, it's got to have a kind of very... Uh, targeted, uh, local, highly focal attention. But the trouble is that if that's all it's doing, it will be extremely vulnerable to everything else that's going on, everything else, uh, whether it's your friends and mates around or it's a, 
a predator, you need to be on the lookout to see where you are in the world, how you relate to it. So if you wanted a kind of soundbite, effectively the left hemisphere is good at helping us manipulate the world, but not good at helping us to understand it. It just sees this bit and then that bit and then that bit. But the right hemisphere has a kind of sustained, broad, vigilant attention instead of this narrow, focal, piecemeal attention. And it sustains our sense of being a continuous being in the world. So these are very different kinds of attention, and they bring into being for us quite different kinds of a world. Um, it's not so much what each hemisphere does, it's the way in which it does it, by which I don't mean by what mechanism, I mean the manner in which it does it. Uh, you, it's better to think of them really as more like different people than different machines. You know, in talking about the brain, people are always a bit... Um, Stuck because you've got to choose either to talk about it as if it were a machine, which it blatantly isn't, or you've got to talk about it as a person. I mean, it's closer to that, but clearly the brain isn't a person either. But it, the two halves of the brain have, as we do, different goals, different values, different preferences, different ways of being. So uh, that that brings me to to what I discovered in a nutshell, which is that, if you like, the left hemisphere has a map of the world and the right hemisphere sees the terrain that is mapped. So one is seeing an immensely complex, very hard to summarize, non-linear, uh, deeply embedded, uh, changing, uh, flowing, never constant, ramifying world. And in the other, the left hemisphere's uh, take on the world, things are clear, sharp, distinct, um, dead, uh, decontextualized, abstract, disembodied, and then they have to be put together um, as you would uh, put things together um, uh, like building a machine in the garage. You have to put the world together as if it were a machine. And, you know, I believe that, and I'm writing a book at the moment, um, another, I'm afraid, very long, <laughs> long book, but uh, which is really saying we've got to stop thinking about ourselves and the world as machines because it's, it's not accurate scientifically and it's very destructive socially, psychologically and emotionally and helps us to um, believe all kinds of terrible things about what our duties are towards the planet, what our duties are towards one another and what it means to be a human being at all. Well, we used to think it was a machine, the brain or, or ourselves, but now we know better. It's a computer. It's not just a machine. Uh, Right. That's, that's, <laughs> Nobody that's, is not. <laughs> a lot of people, of course, <laughs> believe that. Not. A lot of people believe that, and I and I. A lot of people believe that. That's um, my problem with them. <laughs> yeah, and it's fascinating. Of course, they could be right, but um, I'm sympathetic to your no, view. No, they're not right. <laughs> yeah, well, they could be right. I, I, I'm sympathetic to your view, and I found myself struggling, uh, alternating between thinking every word in this book is true uh, versus, wow, mm, is that. Is there really is how strong is the case for that claim? Because there's a lot of um, it, it's a book of here's the way I would describe it. It's a bit of a prosecutor's brief. Um, I, I made a list of some of the words used to, to, against the left side in favor of the right side. Um, I, I made a list of the words that 
I don't think these you use necessarily every single one of these, but it's close. So this is the left side, static, fragmented, linear, solipsistic, controlling, overconfident, objectifying, two-dimensional, virtual, lifeless, mechanical, context-free, and sees the whole as nothing more than the sum of the parts. Uh, but I've got both. And let's say that's true. But I have two sides. I got them both. We all have both other than stroke victims. So in what sense is the left side like taking over or uh, dominating, leaving its its tasks and, and, and taking on more than it was meant to take on and running the, our culture, which well, we'll get to in a little bit? Yeah, well, Russ, of course, you make a very uh, good point, which is that uh, we both, all of us, uh, have uh, – two sides to our brain, and there's a very good reason that we do. And I'm not suggesting we'd all be better off if we had a, um, a left hemisphere stroke. <laughs> um, no, uh, there's nothing wrong with the left hemisphere. As I often say, it's my second favorite hemisphere. Um, and <laughs> we, we definitely need both to be working together. The problem comes from the fact that the right hemisphere is, if you like, a both-and uh, style, whereas the left hemisphere is an either-or style, and the right hemisphere sees more, so it knows what it is that it doesn't know, but the left hemisphere seeing less thinks it knows everything and doesn't know what it is it doesn't know. So, in fact, they do relate uh, in a different way. Uh, to one another, the right hemisphere uh, communicate. and this is a literal neurophysiological fact, that it communicates more and more quickly with the left than the left does reciprocally with the right. Um, and all those things that you read out, I wouldn't quibble with any of them. I'm sure I did use all of them, those adjectives. And I haven't got time right now to give you chapter and verse for them, but they're not just figurative. They're not just... Um, you know, a, a hasty caricature. All of those uh, terms I could flesh out in 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 greater depth philosophically and and uh, neuropsychologically. So yes, you do have a world which is fragmented, decontextualized, appears meaningless, a heap of bits. Um, you have a brain half which is very good at procedures um, much better actually at carrying out routine procedures than the right hemisphere um, but it doesn't understand exactly what it's dealing with so uh, I'm going to be sympathetic to you for a moment I'm going to really regret saying this because, <laughs> because I do consider that the uh, seriously and, and I have a lot to say about it in the new book I mean, nitty-gritty about why it's wrong. Um, the, the brain is nothing like a computer. It's nothing like any kind of mechanism at all. Um, but if you like, the left hemisphere is a little bit more like a personal computer. It, it isn't a computer. But the parallel would be that when you use a computer, you understand data that you're interested in and you then put it into this machine that can manipulate it in ways that would take you years in seconds the machine hasn't the slightest clue what it's doing it spews this stuff out you then take it back into the lived world where it makes sense um, and so if you like the right hemisphere understands what it's giving to the left for processing and it needs to get it back um, take it back in to bring it into the world of meaning let me give you an example um, so, uh, for example, if, um, 
if you if you're learning a piece of music you start off by being attracted to it and then you need to do a lot of rather mechanical processes um the 10,000 hours if you really want to be a concert pianist you have to do a lot of practice you do your scales you practice the fingering um you know take a difficult passage you'll take you'll take a difficult passage and play it over and over and over again just to make sure you play it over and over again decontextualized and so on and yeah yeah now when all that is not wasted time but when it comes to performing it you've got to forget all that if you're thinking about all that you'll never perform the piece at all so it needs to be taken back now having been enriched by being temporarily taken apart into a new whole and everything is like this language is like this for example um the the left hemisphere has if you like the dictionary uh, the, funnily enough, the right hemisphere also has quite a decent dictionary. But for most purposes, we rely on the left hemisphere to give us the words and the complicated syntax. But actually, the business of both the first idea when it comes to you and the understanding of the utterance at the end of the process as a whole, so the, the grounding of it and the at the bottom and the kind of interpretation of it at the top, you need the right hemisphere to do that. In the intermediate step, the left hemisphere is very good, as as I say, um, looking words up in the dictionary, stringing them together according to prearranged rules. But get metaphorical, try to convey implicit meaning, and it's at a loss. So that is a very important difference. And, you know, I, I, I give the example sometimes, but it's, it's quite a good one. You know, if I say to you, um, it's a bit hot in here, and um, you know, using your right hemisphere, what I mean is, can we open a window, which is not what I said. But the left hemisphere thinks, you know, w- w- why is he telling me that? I know it's hot in here. What's that got to do with anything? So in a way, if you like, the, the, the left hemisphere hasn't a grasp of the overall picture. It doesn't understand humor. It doesn't understand metaphor. It doesn't understand embodied meaning. It it can't read faces. It can't read body language. It doesn't know that the things I don't say are just as important as the things I do. It doesn't know that the tone of voice in which I say them completely alters their meaning. All of that has to come from the right hemisphere. So there's no question that the right hemisphere is far more in touch with the whole picture, understands it better than the left hemisphere, even though the left hemisphere is expert at following familiar procedures. As long as it's routine, as long as it's met this one before, it's going to be fine. If it's any way new, forget it. So there's one other piece of the distinction that you talk about that I want to bring out. It's it's central. You just haven't mentioned it yet, which is You've talked about context and and the whole, and uh, but you haven't mentioned this idea that the right hemisphere is about betweenness. It's about our relation to others. It's how we fit in. It's yes. less solipsistic. It's less about me, 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 and it's a recognition that that I'm part of something larger than myself. Which, of course, well, we're going to have a lot to say about that. But talk about that for a little bit. Okay. Well, it starts off in in animals who socialize using their right hemisphere, broadly speaking. So, uh, for example, a bird um, will approach more um, uh, to a mate and will conduct um, an exercise in wooing. Using more its uh, left eye, which in, in a lot of birds is wired fairly much straight to the right hemisphere, than it will the other way around. I mean, just, I ought to gloss that because people get mixed up about this. In humans, the left 
eye and the right eye don't just cross over to the other hemisphere and the left visual field of both eyes goes to the right hemisphere and the right visual field of both eyes goes to the left hemisphere that's good we've got eyes on the front of our head but a lot of animals and birds um, very conveniently for doing science um, have the eyes on the side of the head so you can tell which hemisphere they're preferring for this task um, and you know they, they will actually turn their head round inconveniently to look with the eye that is appropriate for the task that it's actually carrying out. But so socializing is a more le the right, it's the right frontal expansion, which was never mentioned in medical school, but is actually the largest asymmetry in the brain. Um, we were taught that the left hemisphere is expanded in what, what was known as the language area. Um, but we weren't told that the right hemisphere actually has an even bigger expansion, which is in the frontal lobes, and is the most highly evolved and la lately evolved part of brain uh, structure morphology. And that is, uh, that is what gives us the capacity to be what Aristotle called the social animal, that we are these beings that can read others' minds, live with them, uh, don't have to have everything explained but can understand the nuances of massively complex situations, can read tiny changes that last just for a few hundredths of a second in somebody's eyes, that kind of thing. So being able to be social is, is something the right hemisphere is very important for. Um, and it's also very good at, for example, things like humor, uh, which is important socially. Um, but what um, I think you are, are saying is that um, I haven't talked about um, things like um, um, theory of mind, or is that not what you're? What no, you, you just that was fine. To? That's exactly that's exactly right. Yeah. I, yeah, and yeah, I wish yeah. we. I, wish I, we had... I mean, the word. Perhaps I. Go on. No, I, I I think I ought to you gloss the word betweenness. Yeah, you know, talk about it, that. It's a word I made up. It's a word I made up, and it doesn't mean just the sort of gap between two things um but it is the say there's you and me and we know one another very well we're good friends we have a relationship my friendship with you and my other friends constitutes to a very large extent who i am how i relate to the society in which i grew up how i relate to everybody that i've met um my whole being is in a thing that is not just my body but ramifies through experience into the context of myself and the world and it's not it can't be just thought of as a simple relationship because if we go back to say you and me there's you and there's me and there's the relationship as it were the, the between us but that includes what you and and I become in the context of this relationship which is a whole new thing so I, I again give the example of music. You know, um, music can, if you're a lover of music, this is something that can be probably the most important thing in your life. It can give you richness and meaning in life to a greater extent than almost anything else. And yet what is music? It is a series of notes. And what is a note? Let's take it apart. Let's drill down, as they say. Let's be analytic. Let's see what it's made up of. Well, it's made up of these notes. Ah, at last, a note. What does a note mean? Absolutely nothing at all. Okay, uh, well, let's take another note. Uh, means absolutely nothing. Put a few thousand of these notes together that mean absolutely nothing, and you have something that means everything. Now, how did that happen? 
It can't be because of, as it were, the gaps between the notes, because the gaps are silence. And it can't be because of the notes themselves, because they don't mean anything. So it is the betweenness, which is not the notes on their own, nor the addition of that to the silences on their own, but the entire whole new irreducible, undecomposable structure that is Schubert's C major quintet or whatever it might be. So there's something that newly arises uh, that is quite different. Uh, it's a little bit like in chemistry. You know, you take a, a dull, gray, malleable metal like sodium, and you mix it with, a, with a, 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 an evil-smelling, poisonous green gas, chlorine, and you get white crystals of salt that, you know, make your life rich. Now, what, what's going on there? That's amazing. That is a kind of betweenness. Yeah, I find it well. I find it quite profound. I, 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 just to respond to that, with a couple of thoughts that that I had while I was reading the book. Obviously, a conversation. This conversation is a special example. There's there's one conversation where I write down a bunch of questions, and you answer them. And I could have sent you the questions in advance. I could have read them out loud. Then you answered them, and that would create this interview or conversation. That's not a real conversation. A real conversation is alive. It's more than just our back and forth. Uh, a real conversation is more than just alternating monologues. Exactly. And I, you know, I argue in my uh, my Adam Smith book that that to be a fine human being, and I got this from Smith somehow. I forget how, but to be a fine human being, when you're talking to someone, you're not always thinking about what I'm what you're going to say next. You're actually listening, and listening is an, is very is yeah. very difficult. The other area where I think it comes into play is narrative which is related to your idea of metaphor, which you talk about a lot. And a narrative is just, you know, one darn thing after another. Um, and I'm, <laughs> right? It's just a symphony of, of words. But somehow a great story is more than just a sequence of events. And it has to do with partly the events, how they all work out together. But more than that, it has to do with how they're told. A great storyteller is creates something transcendent, something that makes you uh, those connections that, that – illuminates the connections between the events using the words, just like a great composer can use rhythm and other things uh, and the instrumentation, the orchestration and so on. But I, I think the, um, the other aspect of it that I think is so important is that how you see yourself in the world. We spend a lot of time inside our own heads, you know, thinking, what do I need to do? Mm. What am I afraid of? I hope he doesn't say that. I hope he's going over there. Where's that car? What's that doing? You know, we have we're deeply immersed in our own world. Sure. And we have, but we understand that to lead a full life, we have to escape from that prison, and we have to interact with others. And it's not just I'm going to go far afield here because I want to make sure I get to this. It's not just oh, I wonder what's in it for me. It's got to be mm. what are we going to create together through our conversation, our dance, mm. our song, mm. and so I. That metaphor, whether it's neuro, neurological or not, of the right side of the brain being aware and focused on that richness of context and interaction, to me, is a profound mm. insight into the human experience relative to the, what you call the left side of the brain. And again, I've, I can't speak to the accuracy of it, that, that somehow it's all about me. And there is a big part mm. of me that's all about me. But if that's all there is about me, I'm leading a very shabby and sterile life. Indeed, yes. Um, I don't think one can 
emphasize enough uh, this idea because we start from this age-old, deeply entrenched idea that there are isolated entities. There's me, there's this table, this chair, this room, um, and that it has to be constructed. But it isn't. It's a seamless whole as it stands. And the things that we identify are are events that, as it were, stand out against the background. And I'm writing a book called There Are No Things. <laughs> and um, I, was, <laughs> I, was, I was being uh, uh, in an interview with Jordan Peterson uh, a couple of months ago, and I told him this, and he said, oh, what are they then? Uh, and I said, patterns, flows, relationships. And that is actually what matters. That is where all the meaning is. Um, it's in, and indeed, that's no news in that. If you came from an ancient Oriental culture, you would know precisely what I'm talking about. But in fact, you can arrive there late in the day, several thousand years on from having made big philosophical errors, in my view. Um, you can find that now in certainly current physics, but you can also find it in current biology. People are beginning to see that the metaphor of the machine is just completely wrong. It doesn't, it doesn't illustrate what we are at all. It doesn't account for it in any way. It doesn't work like a machine. So, so that's why I'm rather rather down on that. And I haven't got time to give you the full story of that, but I'm hoping you'll buy oh, the next eight. You'll be back. Page book. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be back. I'm I'm confident of that if I'm if, if I'm here uh, and if you're here, we'll, we'll both be talking. <laughs> yeah, together. and if I am too, yeah. yeah. If any uh, of those, yeah. let me, let me bring this to economics now, which I think is, um, and I, I should mention, and we're going to get to it, but uh, it's impossible to do justice to the full range of ideas of the book. Second half of the book is an application of this different way of interacting with the world that you posit the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere have, and applying that to the evolution of um, Western civilization. A small task. Uh, so you go back through Greek uh, history, philosophy of thought, up through the modern era, it, with large stops at the um, the Renaissance, Reformation, the Enlightenment, Romantic period. And you talk about how, and this is, I find this difficult to say, uh, to accept, but I, but I like the idea of it, which is you make the argument that at different times in cultural history, the left side was more ascendant or the right side was more ascendant. And that's difficult because culture doesn't have a brain. Each of us has have brains. Uh, so I'm going to, I'll let you defend that later, perhaps, but. For now, I'm just going to say okay. I, I want to think of it as a metaphor, which you at the last page of the book say very eloquently that uh, metaphors are, are not just for fooling around with. They're the way we understand the world. So, what I, again, putting aside the neuroscience, if I look at the world as either a manifestation, the things, the way we understand the world is either a manifestation of the left versus the right. The right side is the way you've you've described it. it has some very interesting applications to economics. So. Through most of economic, the evolution of economics, going back to, say, Adam Smith, Adam Smith is interested in narrative. He's interested in description. He's interested in understanding. He has a very um, emergent, and I would describe it as biological view of human interaction. Biological meaning more of an ecosystem mm. than a physical uh, system like a planetary orbits it's not mechanical at all there's nothing mechanical in in smith's either the wealth of nations or the theory of world sentiments he's 
he sees the world's complexity. Mm. He's not trying to build a map. He's he's giving you his perception of the terrain. And then we come up through uh, 1945, and we get to F.A. Hayek's uh, Use of Knowledge in Society, which is a Smithian essay he wrote about the complexity of the interaction of people and market processes and how prices uh, mediate our interactions. And they're complex, and they're not mechanical. And he wins the Nobel Prize, and in 1974, his address, the pretense of knowledge, says, makes the same point. It's mm. basically, we can't understand this. It's not uh, a question of computing power. It's a question of the underlying complexity, and it's not fruitful to think of it as a mechanical system. Uh, and there he's talking about macroeconomics, business cycle theory, and so on. That was 1945. 1948, yeah. Paul Samuelson uh, writes uh, The Foundations of Economic Analysis, where he mathematizes – and linearizes more or less economic life, uh, and it starts a trend in economics towards seeing the economy as a system of equations, uh, as something to be manipulated, as something we have mastered, as something that is precise, as something that is controllable. And so the change goes from a bottom-up perception, which tends – which is – by almost by definition, to be observed, to a top-down one, which is to be then controlled. And the economist then sees him or herself as a an engineer priest, a priest engineer that that can manipulate the uh, human beings. Ironically, Smith warned against this in, in 1776, he's, uh, excuse me, in 1759 yeah. in The Theory of Moral Sentiments. He talks about the man of system who thinks he can move the pieces of humanity and society mm-hmm. around like the like the pieces of a, on a chessboard, forgetting that they have motions all their own. So in economics, I see the, the metaphor you're using uh, very powerfully, and, and so many economists see the world in your left side way, what you describe as the left side, which is, I know, I, know, I got this. <laughs> let me let me do this. Uh, we know how to do this. We know what the minimum wage should be. We know what stimulus package we need to pass. It's it's a little it's short by two hundred thirty four billion dollars. And your point is that that's a deep misreading of what science should be, just as it is in many other applications. I would you know I harp on it endlessly here on the program. Epidemiology and other aspects medicine that the complexities are not controlled. We don't understand them, and yet people you know, go around as if they have all the answers. And it's very, uh, I think your way of seeing it's very powerful. And I'll just close with one thing on this and then get, let you respond. But, of course, then I say to myself, am I just kind of smugly re- dismissing their smugness? <laughs> you know, I, I'm so smart. I know how not smart I am. They're so dumb. They think they're really smart. And so I start to think, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not sure how to balance that out. But anyway, react to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, my reflection on that is it's not what you think, it's it's the, it's the how of how you think it that matters. As It's not what you do, but the manner in which it is done and the reasons for which it is done and the mentality with which it's done that changes it. So you may be right that they're, um, you know, missing something um, without necessarily being smug about it. I think a degree of humility is what's missing from many of the crasser areas of both um, physical science and social science. Um, and as you quite rightly say, you know, there were uh, several Nobel Prize-winning economists who've got egg all over their face because just before everything crashed, they said, we know how to do this, it's never going to crash again. 
So um, there's no question about that. And one very odd thing is that, you know, I, I thought that um, neurologists and psychiatrists and philosophers and, and people in my sort of area would would, would would respond or hope that they might. I didn't think they'd respond as much as they have, but I, you know, at least expected that. The bit I didn't expect was uh, how my mailbox was full of stuff from economists and people in the world of finance who said, you've just described exactly the problem. Now, I know next to diddly squat about <laughs> economics and the world of finance. Um, so I was surprised by this. But of course, having talked to them, I see exactly why they say that. Um, and so I find myself, you know, being invited by people in, 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 the, in the world of industry and, and economics to, to enter into a conversation. I think um, I could illuminate a little bit, um, you know, you said... Oh, perhaps you don't want me to address the question, but you did rather provocatively say, um, I, I'm not comfortable with this idea because a culture doesn't have a brain, you know. Yeah, talk um, up, you can respond to that. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, uh, I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding here. I'm not saying that, as it were, something has happened in the brain and it's controlling you or controlling uh, society. What I'm saying is that the brain inevitably constrains the options for us. It's giving us, if I'm right, um, and there is no dispute that I'm right that the two hemispheres attend differently. I don't think anybody in the world who knows anything about neurology would, would disagree that on the whole the left hemisphere attends in a different way from the right hemisphere. And, and if um, uh, I'm right in thinking, as I think most philosophers would agree, that if you attend to something differently, you see something quite different, then you can put those two together and the two hemispheres will produce different versions of the world. It's, it's logic. It's got to do that. And you see it happening in the history of culture. That's really what I was uh, aiming to show. I wasn't suggesting that if you scanned people 500 years ago, you'd find different things lighting up in their brains, so to speak. That is not the point. My point is that we can get blinded to certain things by custom and by the way in which our culture talks. We can learn to ignore things that our brains are fully equipped to tell us, but which our culture tells us we shouldn't listen to. And so we can develop what, in my view, is a very simplistic, impoverished idea of the world, simple, predictable, mechanical, controllable, uh, even perhaps complex as it gets underway, but nonetheless by routes that are effectively predictable and controllable. Or you understand that we don't know a tenth of what we're dealing with and that these systems are intrinsically, not accidentally, but intrinsically unpredictable. Um, and that the fool is the person who thinks that they know it all and can control it all. I mean, that has been demonstrated comprehensively throughout human history and was the background to perhaps gave us that was most valuable, the history of tragedy. You know, that tragedy is about hubris. It's when things come crashing down. Um, and my own view is that um, our society is, uh, I'm not generalizing about the human beings who have the same capacity to be, um, you know, subtle, wise, kind as, as they ever did. But the culture is not like that. The culture is, is missing an awful lot 
I, I think it's rather crass. I think it's egotistic. Um, I think it's highly materialistic in a way that is not helpful. Um, I think we've lost the moral compass. I think we've lost the, the sense of the spiritual. Um, it's, it's nasty in, in, in a lot of ways, yeah. Um, and I, 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 what I thought I saw and why I thought it was worth going there in the second half of the book was that there were parallels that three times in the West we've had a civilization that that flourished and it often came into being rather 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 quickly. It sort of came almost out of nowhere. Suddenly there was a great efflorescence of knowledge, learning, understanding across the board, you know, in, in, in science, in astronomy, in, 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 in maps, in, in, in exploration, in philosophy, in, in the arts, in, 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 in drama. Um, and then gradually that waned. And you might say, uh, if, if you didn't know much about human civilizations, you'd think they take a hell of a long time to grow and then they just go like that. But actually the pattern so far has been more like they seem to come into being rather quickly. Um, and I, I'm, I don't really want to try and explain that because I can't. But they, well, I have my own theories, but they're not worth saying. But, but they, what certainly happens is that they then degenerate over time. And in every case, um, as uh, Greece went from the very rich era of, you know, the sixth fifth century BC uh, down more towards the the um, Hellenistic period and on and then in the Roman period from the end of the Republic and, and the beginning of the Empire which was a, a very rich period for the four centuries until Rome collapsed and then again with us at the Renaissance this wonderful efflorescence of everything you know good for science good for art good for every human endeavor, enormously rich, suddenly incredibly creative. And then we've got more rule-bound, more rigid, more hubristic, more certain that we know things, always a bad sign. And now I think um, we're, we're, we're at a point where our civilization is ready to, to collapse. Um, so let me, let me... Partly some of that is economic and political, because I think in each case what's happened is... A society has overstretched itself by having an empire, um, and we're doing that too. Both a both a, a, a an administrative empire with the British in the nineteenth century, but more now the um, global and American uh, empire of commerce. Anyway, so, sorry. Let, let, yes, let me push back on that. Um, although I'm mm. there's there's a door and and dark side of me that <laughs> finds that. Uh, appealing to accept, but I want to let me push back. In the, I'll put on my um, Stephen Pinker, uh, Jonah Goldberg hat recently here to talk about the Enlightenment. Um, yeah, and, and so let me make the case. Uh, let me make a brief case for the Enlightenment, and then you can tell me why why you disagree or accept some of it or not. So, uh, the Enlightenment, which is the rationalistic, scientific. Um, Rejection of religion, uh, embrace of reason is the sort of uh, bumper sticker version of it. Uh, that's led to the yeah. greatest uh, advances in, in the world. We, we got out of that uh, capitalism and we got out of it democracy. And because of those two things working together uh, with science and engineering and technology, we've transformed human life expectancy. We've 
pulled people out of poverty. We have uh, reached some of the greatest uh, standard of living uh, in human history, unimaginable for the masses, certainly in, in the developed world and increasingly in the in the developing world, the poorer world. The number of people in the last 20 years who have come out of abject poverty is, is, is just shockingly glorious. And uh, women don't die in childbirth like they used to. Children don't die in, in their first five years as they used to. We've abolished smallpox. Uh, so many wonderful, glorious things from that left side, focus, reason. Uh, let's get rid of the mumbo jumbo uh, of superstition and religion and let's focus on the what science and technology can do. And it's all good. What are you complaining about? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you don't need to uh, tell me what the <laughs> what the Enlightenment did for us. Um, and there's no doubt that if I'd been living in and the don't, 18th century, don't we need century, more of it? Don't we need more of it? I mean, I we're would, on our way to the well, singularity. I, 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 we're going to have we're going to we're going to upload our brains into machines and live forever. Everything's going to be great. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> no, as I was saying, um, if I'd been living in the 18th century, I'd have I'd have undoubtedly been. Um, enormously confident that what we were doing was very good. The thing is, you've you've mentioned a lot of things, but everything in life, uh, which is not the way we normally think, we think there's good stuff and there's bad stuff. But actually, if you look at things, every good has a dark side. And even the things we think are bad have their redeeming features at times. So the world is more complicated. That was a very left hemisphere story you just told me. I know it's Stephen Pinker's. I'm sure he would wear the badge of being very left hemisphere minded um, as a badge of honor. Um, but I do think it's, it's blinkered. Because you mentioned things, uh, some of them I would not dispute. You know, it's it's better, uh, the, obviously, that we, we don't physically suffer in the ways that we used to. But we actually have a problem because of that, because of the good things like medicine and, and, and better nutrition. We now have a problem of resources, which is not going to be solved by technology because technology consumes resources. And I don't think most people really understand quite how bad that problem of resources is. There's an absolutely wonderful lecture by Al Bartlett, a physicist on YouTube, which I expect you know, but if, if you don't and if your listeners haven't, please go and look it up now and watch it. It's about an hour long. It could change your whole way of thinking well, about don't, things. Don't go listen because to it now. Wait till the end of this no, conversation. No, 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 and we'll, now. No, and we'll no, put no, a link no, up to make it. A note. <laughs> make a note of it. Yeah, no, because effectively what he's saying is um, there is absolutely no way. It's not a matter of, you know, if it's a matter of when, and it will be very soon, we will have exhausted various kinds of resource, which we are using exponentially. Um, and his point is human beings don't understand exponential growth. Um, they, uh, you know, the famous thing that you put a bacterium in a jar at 11 o'clock and it, it doubles every minute and you come back at, at 12 o'clock and it's full. When was it half full? 11.59. And when would a bacterium in that jar have realized it had got a problem? At 11.58, the jar was only a quarter full. At 11.57, it was only an eighth full. At 11.56, it's only a sixteenth full, but that was four minutes before it hit the buffers. So we're in that kind of a world, and 
there's far more to world than just having more years. You mentioned longevity. Is that necessarily a good? Um, that we can get more stuff. Is that necessarily a good? Do you think we're happier? The evidence is we're not happier. The evidence is that actually people who lead lives that we, in a somewhat patronizing way, think of as very basic and simple, may have more stable existences, feel more fulfilled, and be as happy or happier than we are. So it's not as straightforward. It reminds me of when I told um, a colleague of mine who's a distinguished professor of psychiatry somewhere, the research which shows you know, pretty clearly that we aren't any happier and there's a stronger case that we're not as happy as we were in, say, the 1950s or 60s, when, you know, life was relatively um, uncomfortable on the, on the terms you've just described. And he said, but that can't be right. They've all got washing machines, you know. And uh, I'm sorry, what you just gave me and what Pinker says is a version of, but they've all got washing machines. But there's a bit more to life than that. And if we're actually not able to understand and enjoy the spiritual aspects of life and to feel a relationship to nature and to, if we believe that we don't mean anything, what is the point in it? There's a rather curious element to modern thinking, which is the more we think life doesn't mean anything, the more we hang on to it, the more we want it never to stop even though we're more stressed than we used to do, have higher rates of mental illness than we used to do. And we're in the process of destroying not just ourselves, but the whole rich business of this planet, its, its creatures. Um, well, I, wanna, I won't I, go on because it'd be a long story, but I think it's one you know but can't be said loud enough. So, you know, I don't, I don't share this optimism. And I don't think it would be good if we became more like machines. I think it would be good if we became less like machines and we used machines to help us in a sparing sort of way towards the things that really are drudgery and need to be got rid of. So I'm, I have mixed feelings about all that. Um, I, I'm not as pessimistic as you are. Is, is it Al Bartlett? Is that his name? Al Bartlett, yeah. Yeah, as, as he is. But I'll have to give him a listen and, and see what I think. But on the other aspects about meaning, I think you're uh, spot on. Um, you know, I always think of the phrase, uh, everyone's fighting a battle, so be kind. Uh, we all have our ghosts, our phantoms, our fears, our insecurities. And strangely enough, our higher standard of living don't help us with those things. They don't help us with our fundamental challenges of relating to other people and of empathy. And um, it maybe, in fact, make them harder, no. you could argue. Um, but And I want to, if we have my time. Fav- yeah, go ahead. Mm. No, I was just going to say, sorry, um, my favorite is... Uh, never criticize someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes, because by then when they get mad at you, you're a mile away and you've got their shoes. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's uh, it's a good line. Sorry, that was no, that's, a, you can't help it. It's a good, it's a good line. Um, but I do <laughs> think I do think uh, to come back to the seriousness. I think most of us walk around with our armor on all the time uh, that that defends us, protects us from. Embarrassment, humiliation, shame, and uh, you can make a, a case that we've we've had an enormous loss of, of vulnerability and our ability to to share with others. And that, but I think that's a perennial problem of being a human being. And I don't think a higher washing machines don't help with that. And I do think if if you don't have a washing machine, uh, 
it's transformative to have one, but I don't want to suggest that having one is um, somehow the the ultimate. And I do think that as economists, we spend way too much time thinking of human beings as maximizing machines. And you, you point out in the book that Indeed. when you talk about people a certain way, you actually start perhaps to think of it as true. And I had a, we had a credible episode of Econ Talk with Paul Flaterer where he talked about the challenge of professors in particular in finance because that's his field of actually confusing reality with their model. And I, and I think that's a huge problem in science. Um, you know, and that's exactly what I'm saying. Right. The left hemisphere has a model, and it mistakes it for reality. So let me ask you then, but, but I want to come back to your point about uh, – you just said something incredibly profound, which was how is it that as we lose our, our connection to the divine – and the spiritual, and we start to think that life is just a random set of biological events, we cling to it so deeply. And I'd written a question before we started. I said, why do you think we human beings care so much about meaning? Why can't we just enjoy life until we die? And I think that's a, for an economist, a difficult, I'm not going to try to answer it wearing my economist hat, but I'd like your thoughts on it. You know, if you, if you believe that this material world is all there is, why do people care that it should have some quote ultimate meaning or other meaning and many people are happy saying it doesn't and life is just a, a chance to indulge and enjoy and, and and physically you know the uh the dionysian side of, of of nietzsche i have to mention nietzsche because you do many times and anytime you can mention nietzsche you should uh but what is this why do we have this thing with meaning what's that about why, why can't we just be an animal we can't evidently well, you said, we, why don't we just enjoy life without meaning? I would think that's a kind of oxymoron, because when life is meaningless, it's very hard to enjoy it. As you know, the simple be. pursuit of pleasure. Yeah, but it shouldn't be, right? Well, I look at, it shouldn't, I look be, at, shouldn't be according to, according to the left hemisphere's model. But, but as I keep saying, the model isn't the reality. Um, it, it, it computes, yes, but we aren't computers. That's not what we do. So uh, what we... Famously um, require is the sense of belonging and the sense of a purpose, and it's very hard to deny the idea that there is a kind of teleology in living beings. It's a thing that biologists, until very recently, have been loath to come out of the closet and say. But meaning is something very deep uh, in in life, and it's not what confuses the picture is that it's very meaningfulness comes from it not having an explicit meaning, an, an ulterior motive. Just it's exactly because it doesn't it doesn't exist in order that or so that this can happen. It doesn't have an instrumental purpose. That is the foundation of its having the purpose of being enjoyed in itself. So I think we're saying similar things, but I'm saying them, I think, from a, a very different philosophical position, which is that our satisfaction comes um, from letting go, not controlling, not thinking we know it all and being imprisoned in our little egos, in which we try and force life to be something we want it to be and to try and indulge ourselves in pleasure. That is not fulfilling, nor is it good for the human species if we all did that. In fact, if we were all like that, we, society wouldn't, wouldn't last. And maybe if we, enough of us think like that, it won't. But um, 
there's such an idea as dignity. It's a very difficult one. Um, nowadays, people are so allergic to it in case it means that somebody thinks things things bigger themselves but of course actually the very people who um peddle the idea of um you know it we're nothing but uh, also have myths of their own they also have a kind of arrogance of their own um and so it's not as simple as as that um but but we do need uh, to be able to to sense um, the meaning in things. And it comes when we stop trying to find a meaning at one level, which is why Oriental philosophy is so complicated. It says that all is one and all is nothing and all is many and all is being. You know, the trouble is that we come to paradoxes if we are really looking deeply into things. In fact, Niels Bohr um, basically said, you know, oh, thank God we've got a paradox. At last we're on to something. And his son said, uh, my father distinguished between small superficial truths in which paradox is just nonsense, they're, they're, they're simple, coherent, linear, and the deep truths which don't have that structure at all, which are like dipoles in which you can't, you take a magnet and decide, I don't like the North Pole of the magnet. I'm going to cut it off. All you've got is a shorter magnet with a North Pole. <laughs> so, I mean, the two things are mutually dependent. And the big things in life are all of this kind. There's not one that's good and one that's bad. We have to see this complex picture. And what I'm really saying, I'm sorry, that's a little bit way off, but what I'm really saying is that there's two senses of meaning. Um, I can't find a meaning. You know, if I say my wife means the world to me, you say, well, okay, what does she mean? Well, I, you've misunderstood what I mean by meaning. If I say, um, you know, this piece of Bach, as far as I'm concerned, says everything. You say, well, what does he say? You are not understanding the basis from which I'm speaking. Now, life doesn't have a meaning that I can give you in so many words. Its meaning is unveiled to you in the process of living if you are attentive. And so we come back to attention, which grounds everything. And I love this saying by a French existential philosopher called Louis Lavelle, because I think it's succinct, and if you ponder on it, it really kind of brings home to you how important attention is. He said, um, <clears throat> La charité est une pure attention à l'existence d'autrui. In other words, love is a pure attention to the existence of the other. In other words, how we attend to things changes what there is in the world. How we look at the world changes what the world actually is, not just in some nebulous way. It actually alters what's happening. And it's a moral act because by attending in a certain way to the world, selfishly, ruthlessly, mechanically, we can destroy its meaning and go, well, I can't see it's got any meaning, so I might as well just gobble it up before I go. And so our best image of a human being is some disconsolate, uh, constantly, impatiently seeking some further satisfaction fat guy with a large checkbook. I mean, that is, that is not an aspiration for a decent human being. <laughs> In fact, we know that happiness doesn't come, uh, with all due respect to your constitution, from pursuing it. It will run away from you if you pursue it. It comes from forgetting about yourself. Yeah, if I, you can bring that up. 
Well, I, wanna, I just want to mention a couple so, of things that have that have, that this reminds me of that have come up in the past for listeners who want to make these connections. Uh, I think about translation. Uh, you know, people say, "Well, just give me the literal translation," as if that was a thing. It right. The whole nature of language is ambiguity, and again, just use your language. Left side, the left side of my brain says, "I don't like ambiguity. Just tell me what it means." When you say your wife is everything or the world to you, let's see, world, I can look that up. Well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's a meaningless statement, obviously. But, of course, it's not. My right side of the brain um, is moved by the by that avowal. Um, so translation, which I think is – I think it's very difficult for us, many people and me, uh, every human being has, has a bit of this – that has that left side that says, just, just tell me what it means. I want to understand it. You give me a poem and I don't – understand that could be a feature not a bug but uh, there's a piece of it that says no no no. what did he mean by that what did what did what did gerard bentley hopkins mean by uh, dappled don minion uh, i can't remember it by heart but um so that that's one thing that, that i think about a lot is translation the other is this metaphor we used i uh, used i think recently with an episode with mike munger we'll put a link to it where i've used this before to think about how we should behave and I think it's the metaphor of, of a dance floor. The metaphor of the dance floor is that, you know, it, there is a piece of me that when I go out on a dance floor, I want to be the seen as the best dancer. So I could say my goal as a maximizer is to get the most I can out of this 20 minutes on the dance floor. And I want to show off and I want to look great. And everyone's going to say, he's a great dancer. But, of course, that's a really bad dancer. A really great dancer says, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to make sure that neither I nor my partner step on anybody's toes. Uh, I'm going to make my partner look graceful and elegant. Uh, I am going to, with the other people on the dance floor, create something I couldn't create if I were alone, even with the partner, that there's something magnificent about the swirling, unpredictable, spontaneous movement there. And a great dance like that is exhilarating in a way that a planned, I'm going to win this competition, can't be. And the other distinction I want to make which uh, I heard recently from Jonathan Sachs, former chief rabbi of the UK, which I think is a fantastic distinction, is between contract and covenant. A contract is about what do I get out of this? And I think, you know, what's in it for me? And I got to protect myself and I'm going to have these clauses to make sure I don't get taken advantage of or exploited. A covenant is a, a promise. A covenant says we're together. Uh, so a marriage where I go into a marriage and say, I hope I'm ahead today. I hope I got more out of it today than I, than I lost. Or I hope I got more, you know, gee, didn't my wife, hasn't she failed to do this the last three times? I, it's her turn. So if you keep score, you have a lousy marriage. And the way to have a good marriage is to base it on love and to say, let's see what happens. That emergent, attentive, enjoying whatever it is at this moment. And that's very hard for us, especially – that left side of us um, doesn't want that. It wants to say, how do I get more out of this? I'm dissatisfied. I need a better X, Y, Z, whatever it is, whether it's a marriage or a job or a relationship with a parent or a friend. And I think that whole uh, maximizing mindset, which economists adopt, uh, has some real drawbacks in thinking about how you should live your life. Uh, we often rationalize it by saying, <laughs> well, well, but – you got to look out for yourself, don't you? Uh, we, we often rationalize it by saying, well, people don't – they're not literally like this, but they act as if they are. And your point, I think, correctly is that well, if you keep 
thinking they're as if they act that way. Maybe you start to think they do, and you start to think it's rational for you to act that way, which is, I think, I think extremely uh, destructive. Yes, well, it, 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 it's not even rational because it won't it won't be for your own fulfillment or anyone's. Right, it's not meta rational. Um, there are all these. <laughs> The, the rule. I mean, of course, you've got to look out for yourself. But I mean, a point that I think is a, a very interesting one that I came across recently in the writings of two process biologists. They made the point, which I have always believed, that um, it's absolutely true that nature involves competition quite clearly. But that's only half the story. It, at least as importantly, involves collaboration. Your body contains 37.2 trillion cells that at some point in history decided to pool resources and cooperate with one another in order to make something better. And all living things do this time and time again. And in fact, the story of how things progress in nature and how um, how creatures uh, uh, evolve is partly to do surely with competition but at least as much with cooperation and the combination is collaboration and that gets us back in a way to this this idea uh, it's not quite covenant and versus um, contract but I, I would a distinction by the way which I think is a very important one um, so I, I, I agree with with sex about that but you know I when you were talking about the dance floor I was thinking of a couple of things that have been for me almost as pleasurable as anything I can think of in life. Um, and one is taking part very badly in <laughs> um, a kind of dancing that doesn't much happen these days, where a community gets together and there is a kind of flow into which you get taken up. And somehow you find yourself able to do the things without in any way thinking about them. And the sensation of belonging to this thing, you are taken out of time and somehow you are enriched. And the same thing used to happen to me um, when, I, when I lived in London. I, I, <laughs> on a Tuesday night, I used to go and sing in a, a choir that sang Renaissance Polyphony. On Wednesday night, I'd go and dance. Um, I was having dance classes in uh, rock and roll which I love. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, uh, to go back to the Renaissance polyphony, one of the things we would do when we, we thought we knew a piece really well, so there's just a f two or three people in each voice and they're singing different lines against one another, would be to put the music down and walk around the room um, as if in a dance, but sort of no, no particular reason for going any one place. And just listen as you get close to someone else, to how their voice and yours interacts and so on. This is completely an amazing thing. If you play music together with people, um, it, it really means, it, it brings to life what I'm saying about how the important things emanate from this, as they do if you've ever worked alongside people um, on a common project under... Difficult circumstances. One of the things about medical training, um, which in my day was particularly rigorous, I was at one stage working 120 hours a week, uh, and I, I can tell you none of those involved <laughs> sitting down. Um, so I was working incredibly hard, but the sense of it wouldn't be the same actually now because it's all much more managerialized. But in those days, there was a genuine professional culture in which we didn't count the hours. We didn't think, oh, it's time for me to go to bed. We didn't think, you know, I'm getting paid five pounds an hour, which, you know, which is 
half what the cleaner is getting paid. You, you just did it. And you were part of the team and the satisfaction you got out of doing it. I mean, I'm not saying there weren't times when you thought, no, of course, this is crap. <laughs> well, you, yeah, but, but there were a lot of but, times you know, like that. Always that in, yeah, but, but, but afterwards. There's always some, that mix in life. Yeah, yeah. And even at the time, actually, I mean, a lot of it is, is you do get this extraordinary feeling out of it. So, yeah, no, definitely. These, these, this idea of the dance is good, but uh, you also mentioned, and I can't let that go before because it's so opposite translation. I started off my academic life with literary criticism, and I wrote a book called Against Criticism. And that, that wasn't because I hadn't enjoyed and learnt an enormous amount from what I'd studied, but it was because there seemed to me something wrong with what we were doing to it in the seminar room, because if I can express it as succinctly as possible, someone, a real living human being in the past, had to an extent suffered in order to produce something very special and beautiful, which was entirely unique. Um, you know, if you, if, you, if you have a favorite poet, one of mine is Hardy. You know, if Hardy hadn't written poems like that, or Hopkins you mentioned, a very good example, if Hopkins hadn't written, you could never have thought of his poetry because it's entirely his. There would be a Hopkins-shaped hole in the universe if it hadn't happened. Yeah. So there was something unique and there was something embodied. I, it didn't just consist of a few ideas, okay, I got it, like a computer would. It actually affected my breathing. It affected subtly the tensions in my body musculature it affected my blood pressure my pulse my heart rate my my hair stand on end these things are implicit and much of the meaning is implicit you know william empson very famous english critic wrote wrote a book called seven types of ambiguity one of the most famous books of criticism that writing is all about the richness of ambiguity so it was unique it was implicit and it was embodied. And we came along and we got out of it something that was general and abstract and completely explicit. So we just worked in exactly the opposite direction from the way in which it worked. So if Hardy says, for example, here is the ancient floor, foot-worn and hollowed and thin. Here was the former door where the dead feet walked in. No, that, 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 that's the opening of a poem in which he's saying how much he misses his wife and he remembers this room, a time when they were happy together. But to say that is not to convey anything of the poem, uh, which is why it's so difficult to translate poetry at all. Um, and I think it's a bit sad that, that when... Um, children, no doubt, you know, study Shakespeare at school a bit, um, that... They often are encouraged to go and read No Fear Shakespeare because it'll tell them what it means. In a way, I understand that, but it doesn't really tell them what it means because it's in the words themselves, you know? Uh, Even Shakespeare said something which, which is really a banality. He said, there is no art to read the mind's construction in the face. You know, you think, wow. But what does it mean? It means you can't tell what people are thinking by looking at them. Kind of thing you could hear in the pub, but somehow it's different, you know? Yeah, no, I, I've talked a lot on the program about knowledge and wisdom and how we think uh, somehow it has to do with facts. You need facts to 
be wise and mm. knowledgeable, but somehow stating things. Like I'll get, I'll give an example, a silly example. Uh, it's not silly, but um, uh, there's a a TED talk by Brene Brown. Uh, it's on vulnerability, and I it, when I was reading your book, I was thinking about this talk. Uh, the talk, mm. the point of the talk is uh, it's good to be vulnerable. So I just told yeah. you the point of the talk, and you'd say, "Yeah, I agree with that," but it doesn't get in your bones. <laughs> and if you want to get something to get no. in your bones, you got to say it in a way that gets into people's bones. One way to do that is with a 460-page mm. book on the divided brain, and and you hammered <laughs> on me for, you know, the hours it took, and so I've absorbed the lessons of that book in a way I wouldn't if you just listened to this one hour. I absorbed it in a way I mm. didn't, having watched your 12-minute animated RSA version of this, which I'm going to put a link up to. Although those were all, they were great. Mm. And I hope people love this conversation. Yeah, yeah. But it's not the same. And it's not just because, oh, there's more in the book. It's because the choice of the words and how it gets expressed makes all the difference. Uh, people have yeah. said to me, one of my favorite books is Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Taleb, who's been a guest. Oh, yeah. uh, and people say, oh, there's nothing new in there. Or I knew it all already. And, of course, I knew it too. Life has some random elements that are hard to distinguish from the things that aren't random. That's the point of the book. Oh, oh, I get it. No, you don't. <laughs> you have no chance of getting <laughs> yeah, it. Nice. You could spend a lifetime thinking about randomness, as uh, another guest, William Byers, mm. talked about. It. It's, it's, it's just the nature of some concepts that I think you say it at some point that the more you think about it, the more you realize that there's more to learn. It's not exhausted by describing mm. Um, the the mm. other um, before we end, I want to ask you to defend something. It's hard mm. to defend on one foot, but um, many times in the book you talk you just you talk about the uh, those who are influenced by the left side uh, being focused on the material, the explicit, the concrete, and many guests on this program and many listeners would say, "Well, that's all there is." Uh, when we had Jerry Muller on, Mueller on recently, and he talked about the tyranny of metrics, how measuring things can lead to mistakes, mm. right? And people say mm. to me, yeah. I actually had someone write me and say, uh, I'm very disturbed you didn't give the other side. And I'm thinking, what's the <laughs> other side? That, that, well, they, need, they need to read Jerry's book because well, it's an excellent book. And, yeah, it, but, and he's very balanced, actually, but I think he does a brilliant job. But the person who wrote that was, Sorry, a, data, yes, the person who wrote that was a data scientist who – what he meant by the other side, I think, was that numbers are really good. And they are, of course. There are times when it's it's a very good idea to use numbers to measure things for all kinds of – to measure things in general, exactly. right? But so, – So we're back to the, the fact that the left hemisphere is important at but times. But maybe they're – but maybe – so – but the people it just who – just mustn't think it's a master. <laughs> but the people who say that – the people who say that and – I, and I gave this example then. I'll, I'll give it for you, which is – uh, when I would say to someone uh, that certain financial techniques of, of riskiness of a portfolio are dangerous because you tend to start thinking you've actually understood the, how the risk works when, in fact, you don't, uh, a very Talebian point, someone says, says to me, well, well, what's the alternative? And, of course, the alternative is judgment and humility and, and those who really – you're fooling yourself to think that you've somehow – made it more precise by putting a number to it in certain settings. But what do you say to the people who say, but there isn't anything beside the material. That's all there is. There's just the physical world. This stuff about spirituality or the other, the transcendence, awe, uh, all these things, those are just 
those aren't real. Those aren't real. What do you say to those folks? Mm. Well, I, 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 I don't want to patronize them, but I do feel rather sad for them because, um, of course, that's exactly what I would expect. If you, if, you, if, you, if you don't listen to certain things, then you come to say, well, they don't have any meaning because they, I don't take them into account. Um, it's all you can see is the, the bit in front of your face because you've been misled by a, by a, in my view, impoverished kind of a culture into thinking in rather impoverished terms about the world. Um, but, it's but, not but Ian, Ian, your world is your yes, world. It's just an illusion. You're just saying these things. There's no evidence <laughs> for these things. They don't. <laughs> there's nothing. I can't touch them. I can't see them. I can't measure them. Uh, it's all yes, physical. It's say, all um, chemistry. It's all chemistry. Well, uh, well yes, uh, I know. Of course, that you're advocatus diaboli here, but um, yeah. but it's it's uh, of course, if you think that uh, the only things that matter are things you can touch, um, then you won't understand anything. Like, I, I can't prove to you what love is. You could, I mean, I can't measure it. I can't show you it. I haven't got a handful of it. Um, and if you've never experienced it, you won't know what it is. But I can tell you it exists, and it's very important for many people. Um, there but are many just, things like that. It's just a time, set of neurons. T- time is intangible. Time is intangible, and it's not a neuronal twangle. Um, the fact that neuronal uh, activity accompanies everything we do doesn't tell you anything. Um, it, it, why wouldn't it? Um, it's like we found the bit in the brain that lights up when you eat a ham sandwich or you know, watch the sunset or something. Well, yeah, something's going to light up somewhere, but it doesn't, it's not in itself. I mean, it can sometimes be helpful to know what it, you know, it can, it can, after all, I've spent my life looking at what connects with what in the brain. So there is, there is something in that. But on the other hand, the big mistake is to think that you've described what it really is by re-describing it at a more reduced level. But all the things that matter are of this kind that they can't be proved. But why should they be? Why waste your time trying to prove something to somebody who's constitutionally incapable of understanding it? I mean, for example, I'm completely convinced that Bach is a greater composer than um, Bing Crosby. You know, I, 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 it doesn't matter what you tell me, that I'm going to believe that. Well, I happen to think Bing Crosby's far more, uh, made far better music than Bach. So it's just your opinion. Yeah, okay, well, it is. I can't help you. You know, but I, just because things can't be proved or measured doesn't mean that they're not important and real. In fact, you know, famously, it's the things that um, count that can't be counted and the things that get counted that don't really count. So, you know, we, 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 we shouldn't surely get into such a naive trap as that. One of the most uh, absurd things that's ever happened, as Galen Strawson, an English analytic philosopher, pointed out, is the denial of the existence of consciousness. It's the only thing that we can be certain of. Um, <laughs> It, it, it's matter. People say the problem with consciousness. Well, what problem? I mean, that's the, the one and only thing that is non-problematic. Matter, however, what the dickens is matter? It, it's something in my consciousness that I only know because I have consciousness that seems to resist my will. We don't know that we only have consciousness because of matter. We might or we might not. But we do know that we only know matter through consciousness. So consciousness is the primary thing. And to say it's an illusion is ridiculous because an illusion suggests a consciousness that can be eluded. It's, it's a bit like, you know, if, if somebody says, 
Um, you know, in my consciousness, I see sunlight on a bowl of strawberries. You know, I'm not really seeing sunlight on a bowl of strawberries. I say, well, what would the real thing look like? You know, it's it's like people who say the old joke. Shakespeare wasn't really written by Shakespeare. It was written by another man of the same name. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the, the, if, the, if that isn't consciousness, then what is the real thing like? Um, so it, it's an incoherent concept, in other words. And well, I know consciousness is certainly not tangible. We don't know that it emanates from matter. No, it's, it's, um, I've become increasingly interested in it, and I tried to get some philosophers on the program, but they didn't. They thought better of it um, for whatever reason, but but it's fascinating to oh, me. Right. Yeah. It is fascinating to me that um, we haven't quite e- either. It's there's nothing to it, or we probably will never understand it. Other than that, it's not interesting. Um, I, I find it, you know, extremely interesting. Uh, let's close. I want to I want to say something um, um, ironic about your book, and then I want to le- let you say something. Uh, I'll ask you a question about the book. You can close with. <laughs> So uh, one of the things I loved about your book was the embrace of ambiguity. I remember teaching MBAs and saying something uh, negative about the Swedish MBA system, uh, Swedish economy. And a student raised his hand and he said, but in our our other class today in organizational behavior, we learned that they have really good companies. Yeah. And what he meant was, so which is it? Are they good or bad? The idea that they could be have some good things and some bad things. You know, that's not good for the for the multiple choice <laughs> test. Uh, and and we yes. have that mentality of like, I don't I don't like to bounce two things in paradox. I just tell me the right answer. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, my um, at the beginning of this conversation, I made a, a joke about I can't recommend this book and I can't recommend this book enough. So so the listener is thinking, which is it? Is it a good book or not? Well, it's a very good book, but it's very long, and it requires a great deal of effort because there are allusions and passages that are challenging. Um, there's, there's a decent amount of Heidegger in the book. By decent, I mean more than a, than a sentence. And Heidegger is very hard, so there's maybe a page or two about Heidegger in total. Uh, you may struggle with that as I did. You may want to skip over it. You may want to grapple with it. But the other thought I had, and this comes back to this consciousness thing and that we have to use consciousness to understand our consciousness, is um, you've written a, a systemic book about the problems of systemic thinking. <laughs> you've written a book that makes a powerful case uh, condemning the over-reliance on the left side of the brain. And you had to use the left side of your brain to write that. Did you, ever, did you think about that at all when you're writing the book? I, def- I definitely did. Um, by the way, in my earlier life, I wrote a book called Against Criticism, which contained a lot of criticism. And now I've written a book which is which is against reducing everything to the brain, yeah. but which actually does a lot of looking hard at what we know about the brain. Yeah. But it, it really is, it's part, uh, to be serious, um, I, I, it illustrates very well my point, which is not that there is something fundamentally wrong with the left hemisphere. It only becomes a problem when it thinks it knows everything. It, it should be a servant, not a master. That is, in a nutshell, my point. And so I, I did a lot of very hard work um, in order to construct something which I hope persuades um, the reader. But there was a time when all I thought was, I can't write this book because everything I know connects and ramifies to everything else I know. Um, 
in the end, when, when people read the book, they say it reads in such a way that it's got this clear linear thing. You're carried <laughs> along by it. I had to really struggle to get that going. And I'd just like to gloss the systemic thing because there's two kinds of meanings to that, really, as there are to just about every important idea. There's a left hemisphere type of system and a right hemisphere. So uh, systematizing in the sense of a flow diagram or something like that that's explicit would be very left hemisphere, building a, a system of that kind. But there's also seeing the broad patterns behind things in a more Jungian sort of way, if you like, i.e. seeing imaginative patterns of how things connect in, with one another, seeing a bigger picture not by putting together the lots of things in order with a screwdriver, but by, as it were, allowing something to come into being for you. Those are two different kinds of perceiving a whole. One, a pattern, and the other more of a system. And I would say that um, I hope my book ends up being more of the that, that it is a very rich pattern in which people start to see that things that they experience relate to it. Probably there is something in that because the commonest emails I get from people are of the lines, I mean, I often get ones with a strap line, your book changed my life, which I think is a very nice thing because I was a doctor and I had to give it up to carry on doing what I'm doing. And I thought, how are you going to feel about it? And it turns out that I can still help people. But the other thing people say is, oh, I, in a way, I kind of knew this. Um <laughs> Rather going back to what you were saying, yeah. in a way I kind of knew that. I mean, they don't mean the neuroscience or even the Heidegger or anything else. What they mean is what you have articulated for me is something I profoundly believe and live and understand. And I didn't have any words for it. You've given me words. That's what they say. So that is the, the way in which I think it works, is that I use the tools of those very analytic things to take people to a place where they can let them go. They can, it's where you take the ladder up and then you can kick the ladder away. My guest today has been Ian McGilchrist. His book is The Master and His Emissary. Ian, thanks for being part of EconTalk. It's been a great pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>